Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. I am your host, Joni Kinwall Moore. I'm an RN, an ethnobotanist, and the founder of Snacktivist Foods. Join me on this journey as we explore the ideas, stories, and personalities behind the regenerative food system movement. Food is the connection between people and planet. In a world where pandemics, climate change, and war have made us feel so disconnected and vulnerable, regenerative agriculture has become a powerful force for positive transformation and hope. Here, regenerative thought leaders share how agriculture and food design can create a more resilient system. Okay, welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. I am Joni, your host, and today we have Liz Ward from Bumble Bar and Clean Co-Pack joining us. And we're going to talk about a topic that is really um, near and dear to my heart because as someone who's worked in food systems for quite some time, I feel like the, the middle ground of what happens when the food leaves the field and then finds its way to your plate is the most neglected part of the food system that A, is hidden, and we want to illuminate that. We want to tell the story. And B, it's where a lot of the quality is either preserved or lost. It's all in that processing. So Liz is going to tell us about her story. And welcome, Liz. We're so happy to have you today. Well, Joni, I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. So you and Glenn, who is not with us today, unfortunately, because Glenn is a, a fantastic character and full of a lot of cool wisdom and um, <laughs> anecdotes as well and, and great humor. Yeah. And, um, but, but you guys have had quite an incredible journey. Um, and I'm going to just bring our listeners a little bit into the fold that back in the 90s, I started a little cookie company in Missoula, Montana called Kineta Cookies, and they were vegan protein cookies. And we were way ahead of the curve, apparently. I, we should have probably stuck with it. But... I ended up reaching out to Glenn and Liz back at that time and asking them about co-packing because we couldn't scale without a co-packer. And Glenn and Liz had a fantastic, have a fantastic brand called Bumble Bar and they were making bars. And that's when I first met them. Granted, it was not like we weren't like keeping in touch, but they've been on my radar like 30 years later, pretty much. So Liz, tell us about that story. Like what prompted you guys to start that? Where did you come from? How did you get together? And how did this all start? Well, uh, it started in the Midwest, strangely enough for both of us. Glenn and I were actually born um, about, I don't know, a couple hours away from each other uh, back in Michigan. And then I grew up in Michigan and Wisconsin and moved out west, as they say in the Midwest, um, to the Pacific Northwest uh, when I was 18 years old. And... I had never actually been out there, but I, I knew it was super beautiful and I knew it was more progressive and there were some school programs I was interested in. And, um, I, within the first like couple months that I was living in Seattle on Capitol Hill, I somehow Mm -hmm. came across a book on veganism and I had already been like way into natural food ever since I went to my first co-op, the outpost in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, when I was like 13, for some reason, my dad took me in there and I was just enthralled. You're like, I'm home. I'm home. I'm a, yeah. <laughs> I know exactly. that Exactly. <laughs> this is the promised land, right? Like I yeah. love everything about this. So, yeah, totally. 
so then um, I moved out, out, out to Seattle and I got this book on um, veganism, which was an eye opener and um, probably turned into uh, a pretty militant vegan um, for quite mm -hmm. a while. And mm -hmm. I, I, I love to learn. I, I read at least 50 books a year, um, usually wow. more than that. And That's impressive. Well, thanks. I, I just, I've always really loved reading and I, I also really like to learn. And so in school, I pretty much studied whatever struck my fancy, like economics, American sign language, um, just totally all over the place. And I, 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 so I was kind of trying to figure it out. And I knew that I wanted to make some sort of positive impact because that was the way I was raised. My parents started, my mom was a social activist and had me working in a soup kitchen, which she helped found when I was like eight years old, collecting tickets, wow. perched, perched cool. on a, perched on a little stool. And then yeah. by, the, by the time I was 16, I was actually running it and cooking for hundreds of people every week. And, and wow. I, I really love, I love food and I love making food. I love making people happy with food. And most of all, I like making healthier food that yep. people love, right? That's delicious and they're not they're not compromising on the flavor profile or, or anything like that. But um, yep. just through making that choice, um, it has very big um, ripple effects. So Mm -hmm. Back to, back to w wanting to make a difference with my career and kind of floating around. I, 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 I have a lot of tragedy in my background, and I thought that I could leverage that into a nursing career. And I realized fairly quickly <laughs> that it was way, way, way too emotional. Mm, and and I, totally. thought, <laughs> I thought it um, is you know, what makes me really happy and what makes me really super duper happy is like I just said, healthy food, feeding people, healthy food, um, vegetarian and vegan, healthy food. So, uh, at the time it's hard to believe, but there actually weren't any certified organic snack bars, um, on the market. And wow. And I, and I had these two different ideas, uh, for products and I guess in retrospect, they're both a little weird for the time. So one was the bumble bar, the mm -hmm. sesame and flaxseed bar with nuts mm -hmm. and rice syrup. Mm -hmm. And my other idea was I make really good um, roasted soybeans, but it was mm -hmm. before soybeans were mainstream, like soy in general was just really weird and there was not very yeah. many people eating it. So I thought, oh, I'm going to go with this sesame flax bar. And yeah. I started shopping it around to Seattle and um, because it was the first certified organic bar and it was also gluten-free and vegan, it was a no-brainer for stores to take it in Seattle. And then right. um, within that year, I, I showed up basically on my now husband's doorstep. He lived out in the woods on the Kitsap Peninsula and some friends were going over there for dinner and asked me if I wanted to go. And we just started talking and it's like, we never stopped. Right. Like it's <laughs> yeah. Decades later, still talking <laughs> decades later. Yeah. Decades later, yeah. you know, we still love that. 
98% of the time really love each other. So, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and run a business together and raise kids together. Like that's our core, which is a miracle. It's yeah. a miracle. It, it has its pluses and its minuses, but Glenn and I are really lucky in a lot of ways. And one is that our skill sets are very complementary. Um, yeah. so we're definitely more of a whole, the two of us together mm-hmm. instead of just individually. And, um, so I, I showed up on Glenn's doorstep. We started talking, we fell in love. He was actually working in corporate America at the time, which, um, since you know, Glenn, he's, um, uh, quirky and funny and out of the box. He's hilarious. Yeah. He is hilarious. yeah I enjoy him. And, 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 and also his work schedule was, um, he had really weird bad hours. So at any rate, he took a flyer and, uh, came over to Bumble Bar and we proceeded to grow the business into a top 20 bar brand, um, through a lot of, a lot of really super hard work. We both like to work hard. Um, yeah, which is good because. It's the only way when you're a business owner. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? There's no shortcuts. <laughs> no. Labor of love, yeah. Labor of love and also a school of hard knocks, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. So, but, I mean, I remember eating your bars and loving them. And, in fact, I always laughed at, like, when my first daughter was born, you know, you, you know, the first thing you eat, you kind of remember because after having a baby, it's <laughs> quite the workout right it's like oh I climbed Everest what did I eat when I got home well I had a bumble bar oh, <laughs> it was like the that. best thing ever yeah it was so good so it's just so that. It, that was back in 2006 so yeah it's just funny like all like you don't realize the impact of your brand sometimes until you hear those funny little stories so yeah <laughs> yeah I love that and it's like nutrient dense and and it yeah. still tastes good right um, yeah and it was exactly what I needed so um, and, and it's interesting because you guys have gone the route of like you've explored with co-packing and then taking it back in, realized that you were really good at managing that middle ground and creating that um, culture of quality and integrity and transparency, which is not always easy to find out there in the co-packing world. And I think you guys do an exceptional job at it. Thank you. We try mm-hmm. hard. We really try mm-hmm. hard. Uh, Glenn also loves to learn. And, mm-hmm. um, we're both, I mean, that's one of my most favorite things actually about my job is that I'm always learning and it's super yeah. rigorous. Um, yeah. sometimes never gets monotonous really. No. Cause there's always something new being thrown at you. Like when did you guys make the transition going, okay, we're making our bars, we're manufacturing our bars. We're doing a really good job. These people keep calling us to ask for help. Like maybe we should consider the co-packing as like a real extension of our business. Um, aside from our business? Like when did that happen? And how did you guys work through that process? 2008 is when that happened. The recession hit. And because we had always been self-funded, we did not have the deep pockets that the large players had. And so Mm -hmm. they could deeply, deeply discount their products. And we just were not in a position to do that. And as you know, being in the grocery industry is extremely costly. And, and so we had to make a pivot and I was like, Hey, how about all these people that want us to make product? What, why don't we take a flyer and say yes. And we said yes to Hain Celestial, um, which is a really large natural foods brand. And it was such a gift. It was such a gift. 
because they, we were like, you know, we're little tiny mom and pop shop here. I don't know that you know what you're getting yourself into, <laughs> but they actually wanted to work with a smaller manufacturer and specifically they really wanted to work with us uh, because we were values aligned. And mm -hmm. so they um, sent a quality person up here and the quality person spent, I don't know how long helping us build out, you know, food safety programs. And even though mm -hmm. we had always scored high on all of our inspections and everything, we were super unsophisticated, you know, it's, it's super, it's very complicated and it's, it's what, so what you don't know. It's what you yeah. don't know. Yeah. Um, and there was a ton that we didn't know. So, mm -hmm. uh, so Hain very generously, um, taught us a whole bunch of stuff and built out a whole bunch of processes and wow. we just sort of took off from there. And then, you know, the, the clients kept, kept coming. Like I, another thing in my job that I really like doing is product development. I can steer, I can steer, um, I can steer product development in ways that it might not have gone other way wise. Like, Mm -hmm. Sometimes maybe somebody was thinking they were going to use dairy and they're not aware of the non-dairy uh, alternatives mm -hmm. and how, and, and, and honestly, a lot of the non-dairy proteins are tricky to formulate with as, as, as you know. Um, mm -hmm. But I've been able to steer, steer companies into healthier and better for the planet direction. So I've made products for Pepsi and Dole and, Dean and DeLuca and a whole bunch of big brands. Um, and that's been, that's been really, really great. Really mm -hmm. great. Um, I bet. And, it's like the and, magic behind what most people just pick up and eat and go, oh, this is great. But it's fun. It's so cool to see the person behind that and like how that actually came to be. Yeah, it's really fun. I love being, I love being creative and I especially love being creative with food. So mm -hmm. I, I, and and the people that we work with are very kind people, and um, we're we're values aligned, and I think that's one big reason why people really do want to work with us because mm -hmm. we're committed. We're really well, and committed. you don't just say it; you actually do it. And in this day and age, there's a lot of talk about sustainability and greenwashing, and you know all this stuff, and then you look under the hood and you're like, wow, what are you actually doing to achieve these statements that you're claiming? And it's often not there. And, I, you know, so I always think it's so great to find other brands and companies that really put their walk into their talk about things. And even if they're not doing them yet, they're building what it takes to get there. And that's a huge part of the process, too. I, often that's the excuse of like, well, it's, it's going to take us some time. You're like, well, then what are you doing? Like, what what are your steps today, tomorrow, and the next day to get there? And, and that's all part of the process. But when you are in manufacturing, I think what most people don't listen or most people don't realize, and our listeners may not know this, is that there is a myriad of certifications and an incredible amount of administrative hurdles to jump through, to be safety certified, to be HACCP certified, to be certified gluten-free or certified vegan or certified organic. And, and I don't think consumers have any idea what goes into to all of that? Um, I know we've been lambasted by bloggers out there before that were like, you know, well, you're not certified organic. I wouldn't touch that. And I'm like, mm. do you think we have the money to go get, be certified organic? Like, 
even if we are all organic ingredients, we can't mm -hmm. afford that certification mm -hmm. right now because we don't have the administrative internally mm -hmm. and we don't have the cash. And, mm -hmm. and I don't think cons consumers get that. And, um, and I think it's, that's why it's really important that we educate about all these steps in the middle and that transparency that comes into play. I think you're 100% right, Joni. I agree with you. Another thing that consumers don't know is that organic food is, by its very nature, non-GMO. You yeah. can't have a GMO containing organic mm -hmm. in in a certain in a in an organic product. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think consumers just don't know. And you're you're so right mm -hmm. on the um, document control and the cost we spend um tens of thousands of dollars on our certifications safe quality food kosher um mm -hmm. gluten-free uh, i know i'm missing some but um <clears throat> it's it's a lot of money it's a lot of money for the certification itself but even more so what you were talking about yeah is the document the, control it's yeah and the work like you have to pay somebody to do that like or you have to take your own time and there's a cost associated with that um it's kind of an invisible cost that the, that the system and the consumer side doesn't see. Like often we'll pitch to a retailer, like my personal experience, they're like, well, we'd totally be behind this if it was certified, non, you know, verified non-GMO and it was this and that. And I'm like, yeah, but we're a startup brand. We haven't gotten there yet. But if we get on more shelves, then we can pay for it. And they're right. like, well, no, we don't want you on the shelf if you don't already have it. So you have this chicken or the egg phenomenon. That's um, right. And I know a lot of brands ha are up against the same hurdle but I feel like sales buyers don't often understand that either. You know, like the buyers, the decision makers, <laughs> independent stores, usually I feel like they do. They're like a different mindset and they appreciate mm -hmm. the hustle. But, you know, a lot of these other people, they just kind of don't know. I don't think they understand what goes into the middle. So much goes into it. I mean, so, so much goes into it. Those certifications, yep. just like adding new products to some kind of renewal takes hours and hours and hours. We, we recently um, started a new brand with some business partners and those products are certified non-GMO. And I think there's about 20 products. We spent almost 80 hours mm -hmm. collecting yep. all of the documents and yeah. just, executing on the certification and that is yeah. a lot of time that's about where we were at to get non-gmo verified and we have it but we haven't ordered the new packaging so we're paying for that certification but we can't even <laughs> tell the consumers yet <laughs> it's like the irony you're like oh my gosh you know and and then now like then when you start to like change up your ingredient stack like you know for us we do have a real focus on regenerative and transitional regenerative farming and how we incentivize that path to better, which a lot of times really well done regenerative lands you in organic um, because you, you eliminate the need for all these synthetic chemical inputs because you heal the soil. And, and that even adds another complexity that we've been talking a lot to like non-GMO. And I'm like, you guys, we need, we need you to create a pathway that helps incentivize brands that are wanting to work directly with farmers so that there's, there's some sort of assistance getting over those hurdles instead of getting billed another $500 plus another, you know, 20 hours of, of paperwork to go, hey, we're sourcing this from farmer so-and-so. Here's all their information. We're adding it to our ingredient stack. But right now, it kind of almost feels like you're almost punished for doing better work. 
mm-hmm. because the cost and the expense and the time that it takes to make that shift. And I think that that part, in part holds the system hostage because it puts a huge burden on you guys because you're at the formulary level, you're managing mm-hmm. ingredients. Mm-hmm. And then, but then that's, you know, again, this is why I was like, I want to have this conversation with Liz and Glenn because you guys see it in action with many, many brands across the board. Mm-hmm. We sure do. Yeah, we sure do. And, and it's um, the way that I formulate is um, a little different than it used to be. Now I, I, I don't even bother making up samples with ingredients that aren't from approved suppliers because, you know, yep. you know, ingredients can really vary. And if, if I'm not going to be able to qualify the supplier, my supply chain manager is not going to be able to qualify the supplier, then like no matter how great it is, like you were talking about the small yep. farmer or whatever, it's like I, I just can't you do can't it. You can't do it. Because I'm yeah. not going to be able to get it through the certification. So yeah, um, it's- and that's a huge barrier in like really changing um, our food system to regional supply webs, um, more connected, closed loop. It actually forces the food system to have more of a dependency on large aggregators that have all that, you know, kind of infrastructure in place. Um, and it's it's really this is what like a big part of this whole regenerative by design podcast is all about it's like how do we kind of work through the the reality work mm-hmm. through the constraints and then how do we shift that to a more regenerative by design model like what are the big structure things that need to, to change to mm-hmm. allow that to happen what do you mm-hmm. see from your perspective well i love your idea about uh, maybe you didn't say grant money but you you or uh, you said some assistance from the um, from the certifiers. Like, yeah, Something that Biden did recently, which I'm not going to get the number correct, but Glenn knows what it is. He actually serves on the board of Oregon Tills. Um, he's putting a whole bunch of money into trying to transition companies to mm-hmm. uh, or farmers to organic, and mm-hmm. I think I think. Throwing money at it is going to be necessary because I agree. the smaller farmers, they yeah. don't have, and smaller producers and smaller brands, you know, they don't have an extra like ten or twenty thousand dollars lying around, and, and then a bunch of labor to to throw into the certifications along with whatever else they need to do. Um, yeah to transition that way. So I think yeah, brand the market money, alone can't do it. It's going to take extra help and money. I agree with you hundred percent. And then we would all benefit ultimately from that. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm kind of amazed at how things have changed just in the last couple of decades with like awareness of the connection between the food that you eat and the mm-hmm. real impact that it does have on the planet and your own mm-hmm. body. And I feel like, I feel like more and more people are, um, uh, aware of the connection between what they eat and their personal health and mm-hmm. a theory that I that I have which maybe has merit or maybe not is that as the cost of uh, medical care has skyrocketed and mm-hmm. it's not necessarily so common for every job to offer you know 100% medical dental um, vision whatever people kind of have to take their health into their own hands. Mm-hmm. And a big component of that is, um, is diet. Yeah, so. totally. 
And I, I keep wa waiting for this wake-up call where we do start to be able to translate the health cost as a result of food cost. And so much of the food that does drive poor health and the health conditions that land people in the hospital is via subsidized commodities that are highly processed and often subsidized through government programs like WIC. So you're like, wait a minute. Like, so taxpayers are paying to create a food system that puts extra burden on healthcare, which ultimately decreases the GDP, decreases the wellness and cultural wellness and well-being, like all the ripple effects. And how do you collect all that data to create like a proof, like a data-driven proven hypothesis that we're like, hey, if we shift our focus and invest as a nation in soil and good quality food, it actually could help relieve us of some other big burdens that we don't know how to solve, like healthcare crisis, That's climate right. crisis, rural economic crisis, like all of these different things. That's right. Well, I, I think that I think that could be coming, honestly, because if you if you just think about like the last, um, say, 30 years and the acceptance and um, uh, what's the word, not propagation, but the uh, it's so common now for, you know, Joe Schmo meat eater to have like a vegetarian meal a week or whatever. It's not like, you know, 30 mm -hmm. years ago, that was crazy. Or, yeah, you right. Know, eating soy or it was really weird. And I think that things have, are getting a lot oh, better yeah. that way. And I think that things the generation, have changed. things mm -hmm. have changed really, really positively. Mm -hmm. And I also think in, in some regards, and I also think that the generation that's coming up, they are on fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, our kids' age group. Exactly. You know, it, they look at it so differently and I'm glad they're not just all like going for these, bad diets like oh we're mm -hmm. all keto and paleo because like, again like I think the keto did more movement did more to harm like our businesses our branded businesses than anything it was like oh my gosh like you know it's just crazy but you know I feel like the next younger generation they're more concerned about being full from than free from so they're like okay like don't tell us like oh you're you're keto you're free from this you're free from sugar you're free from they're like, what are you putting in it? Like, that's actually what we want to know. Like, what's in this? Like, who was involved? Like, mm -hmm. did people get exploited? Um, mm -hmm. Those are questions that the younger generation are concerned about. And thank God, because those are the things we need to kind of combat these weird dietary myths that are out there, too, that drive these fad diets that are mm -hmm. not sustainable. And not maybe they're healthy, but they're not sustainable. And I'm like, you know, I love avocados, too. But sorry, Dr. Mm -hmm. McCola, I'm never going to eat one every day because I live in northern Idaho. And I'm not willing to exploit the people in Mitchell Khan to get it to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it's just, it's a treat. It's not a daily thing. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. It's just one of those things. So it's like untangling this big web. And, and you guys really do play a critical role. So, like, I know in the last couple of years, um, it's been fun to you relaunch, like, a whole new branded play about your co-packing that you went from Bumble Bar that That's was, right. like, a brand that would work with other partners to help with co-packing, but now you have clean co-pack, which is actually specifically dedicated to the role of co-packing. Like, how did that come about? Why did you guys decide to separate that out? Well, we actually retired the Bumble Bar brand this year because um, it was like 1% of our revenue, one and a half percent of yeah. our revenue. Wow. Um, so it was like responding to market demand and um, the 
we talked about how complicated it is to get all the certifications. Well, just the regulatory environment in general yeah. uh, has become um, much more difficult, which in some regards is really super good because I think, you know, not, I think, I know we all want safe food, right? Everyone wants mm-hmm. safe food. Um, and part of that is reg- the regulatory environment. Um, so I just lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> so move it shifting to clean co oh, yeah, that's and, right. That's and, right. And running two businesses, like running a co-man and running a brand. I mean, they are apples and oranges. Um, and, and quite frankly, the environment of growing a brand has changed dramatically since you guys started where back in the nineties, you could like go, Hey, mountain people, mm-hmm. let's, let's do distribution. Can you drop this off to the co-ops on the West? And now it's turned into this, like kind of a more of an exploitive engine, not to be rude, but it's not easy and it's very exploitive and it's very expensive. And they say now to be a brand like a, to, to get anywhere and to hit profitability, you have to be selling eight to $12 million a year mm-hmm. to hit profitability because of all these cuts that you distributors and buybacks and promotions and yeah. BS up the wazoo. <laughs> what are you, I mean, is that part of what contributed? To oh, shift? absolutely. Like, it's absolutely. too much. Absolutely. Too and, much. and the, and, and, and the co-packing business is really personal. Like we have personal relationships with our clients and, mm-hmm. and just as you described, the branded side used to be a lot more personal. It's yes. those days are gone. And, mm-hmm. um, and the co-packing business was just basically raining down from the sky because the regulatory environment is a lot more difficult um, the idea that a startup brand is going to be able to put together a food factory unless yeah. they've got ridiculous no. amounts of money behind them, but then yeah. they also have to have the knowledge because and the right you, people. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so that's driving a lot. That's driving a lot of demand in co-packing and also in the last couple of years, um, with COVID it's been super duper hard for lots of different, um, Lots of different companies, but especially manufacturing, it's been really, really hard getting people. And so, um, and then there have been the supply chain constraints. So a number of really large, well-established co-packers have closed. Uh, yeah, a like lot. A sh- a shocking, like a crazy lot. A shocking, yeah. a shocking amount. So people are scrambling, um, yeah. trying to find, trying to find manufacturers. And then, um, one thing that I, uh, this is maybe a little bit of a tangent, but one thing I did want to mention about another reason why people like doing business with us, because we're female friendly, right? Yeah. From, from yeah. the top down. And we've had clients come in who were the founders. They were the founders of the company and they would go to tour a manufacturing facility and yeah. they were treated like complete idiots, like in yeah. a needed appendage. Um, yeah. And, totally. you know, obviously that's not the approach that we take, but, Mm-mm. but it's there. That culture is there. And, you know, I used to be kind of like, Oh, is it really that bad? And then I, I got, I got schooled, you know, like being out and about and realized like, Oh no, that's a thing. Like it is a thing. So it's so cool working with other um, value added partners, like people in the middle doing the manufacturing that, that honor that, that you're like, Oh yeah, you, you're the boss. Cool. 
you know, instead of like going, oh, I brought along one of my team members who's a guy and they defer to him in, in conversation, you know? That's exactly what we've heard from like multiple yep. female co-founders. So it happens. It happens I, a lot. I love being a woman in manufacturing for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. You're far and few between. And there are some fantastic ones out there. And when you find them, it's really cool because you start to learn about their businesses. And I feel like they develop very strong corporate cultures too and have mm -hmm. really great retention rates on staff. And it's like a big family. Like we've gotten to know the Betty Lou's people over in Oregon, just like I was so intrigued by their story and they're really close to where my mom lives. And I just wanted to get to know them. And again, it's, you know, Betty Lou founded it and it's mm -hmm. family and you get this really cool sense when you leave those places that like you may, you've made friends and potentially mm -hmm. people someday you may do business or maybe not, but you'll recommend people, you know, like mm -hmm. just because that vibe is tangible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's really cool. And, and you don't get that everywhere. <laughs> There's some really weird, weird commands out there. I'll just put it that way. And, um, you know, I'm just thinking as far as like, you know, actions that people can do, because we're kind of getting to the top of the hour. And, you know, like, because you've been on all these different sides, you are a consumer, you're a, like a food system advocate, you've owned a brand, you've owned a manufacturing, you run a manufacturing plant, like, at the end of the day, like, for people who are listening, and they want to make a difference, they want to make some change, but maybe they're, they're not in the food sector. Maybe they have a desk job and they're just doing something completely different. Like what can people do to make a difference and make this whole world be improved and the, be the world that you and I want to see in the food system? Um, making a difference in the food system, I think comes down to um, personal choices. So, for me, when I'm trying to hit goals, if I just start with some huge, really super hard goal, it feels overwhelming. Um, so I like really super small attainable goals. Mm -hmm. um, and then you meet with success and then you just keep growing the goals. I think if people could choose to eat vegetarian even like twice a week, I read something uh, about the carbon reduction and it's enormous. It's enormous. Yeah. And well, considering the most of the meat and animal products come from confined animal feeding units, like we're not talking most people getting like this, you know, utopian grass-fed picture, which is a totally different thing entirely. I mean, the the environmental impacts are insane. Mm -hmm. They're they're insane. So that's yeah, that's, that's one thing. And then also just like personally, um, that people can do not related to food, but something that's really great for the environment is just thinking more about their transportation choices. Like mm -hmm. you can carpool a yeah. lot. I mean, maybe not necessarily to work, but going out with friends or whatever, mm -hmm. we carpool all the time. Um, yeah. it's easier to park the car and it's like, Hey, let's not have four cars on the road when we could have one. Yeah, um, one less engine. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> For sure. So, so that's, I think those are two choices that are, you know, pretty low hanging, attainable, attainable um, actions that people can take. Uh, not to sound like a braggart here, but my husband did shove me into an electric bicycle. I was like, no, nice. no, because um they're really cool. <laughs> They're really cool. Yeah. So I, I rode my bike. He's, he's way better about being a cold weather biker than I am. I'm a fair weather biker, but 
I got that bike at the end of June and I commuted to work all summer long. Wow. And, and I, I rode more than 700 miles in That's amazing. like a Good few for months. You. Yeah. Well, I mean, not to sound virtuous about it. It's like, it was such yeah. a cool way to start the day. Right. Like, Heck, and yeah. And, yeah. you know, as a business owner, it is crazy stressful, just yes. crushing stress. It is. And taking time for yourself when you work 60, 70 hours a week, it doesn't often happen, especially when you have kids. Because when you do have a little bit of time, guess who's going to get it? Kids. Exactly. Guess who's and not going to get it? Your body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's kind like, of ironic. It is. It is ironic. And the electric bike is like I get my workout in. It's, it, it takes me about 45 minutes uh, from our house to work if I'm riding the electric bike and I get a great workout. And then if I drive, it's like 25 minutes. So really I'm only, you know, it's like an extra 40 minutes round trip. So it's amazing. It's attainable. That's so cool. Oh gosh. Those electric bikes are, are incredible. My sister has one and I love it. I kind of covet it. So maybe one of these years we'll, we'll be able (laughs) to get one too, but Hey, so Liz, I have a feeling people are going to want to learn more about you. Like where can follow up and learn about you, learn about Glenn, learn about your company? Like where, where would you recommend people go? I would send them to our websites, Clean Copac mm-hmm. and Bumble Bar. Um, we're not selling the brand, we're not selling the product, like I said, but there's a lot of great information on there. And then also if you look up on YouTube on Bumble Bar or um, Clean Copac, there's some videos that tell a little bit more about our story. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And if you're out there and you're thinking about starting a bar or, you know, a healthy product, um, I mean, they're just great people to get to know in this industry. So, and I, and, you know, more and more great resignation, people are like, I want to start a company. I want to do something meaningful. I don't think mm-hmm. they realize how hard it is, <laughs> how hard it's going to be to make a living, but, but it's still very rewarding because you feel like at the end of the day, you're contributing to make the world you want to see rather than just sitting around and griping about it, which is a huge right. transition. So, um, we'll put those in the show notes and, you know, all of that great stuff. So Liz, thank you so much for joining us. And I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to, to let our listeners know about what you guys do. It's really my and, pleasure. And why manufacturing is important <laughs> and we need to have transparency and tell these stories so that people understand it's a critical part of the food system. The food system will not work without the work you're doing every day. So thank you so much. And um, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Thanks, Johnny. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. If you would like to learn more about the principles of regenerative food systems and agriculture, please see the show notes for links to education, a glossary, and guest information. This podcast was brought to you by Snacktivist Inc., a leader in the regenerative food industry. We create delicious foods from regenerative ingredients that are soil-focused, minimize water use, and maximize carbon sequestration, all while radically impacting human nutrition. Learn more about our work at snacktivistfoods.com.